In 1 Corinthians 15, in the Message Bible, Message Translation, St. Paul writes something that has got a fair bit of kick to it. I'm just going to read this together. Now, let me ask you something profound yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, share fabrications. If there's no resurrection. You know, these are big words from Paul. If the resurrection didn't happen, you can feel free to disregard everything that your faith is built on. That's the challenge in this text as we sit with that today. What do you do with Easter? What did you do last weekend? Was last weekend um, a long weekend to just go and hang out and do some fun things with some friends, go on a holiday? That's totally cool if you did. That's fine. I'm not, that's not a judge. I'm just saying, is that what you do with it? Did you go to Easter camp like some of our youth did? Is Easter a time to be at home to get the DIY list ticked further? To get those jobs done because it's a few extra days in the, in the hand to be able to do so? You know, what do you do? Did you come to church? Did you have quiet times? Did you consider this moment? What do you do with the Easter event? What do you do with what it is? Not just the calendar item, but actually what it is as an event. This is the origin point of our faith. This is where the church begins. This is where faith is settled. It is a big deal. You know, do you file it away as, well, the resurrection? Yep, figured that out. Truth, tick, hook, line, sinker, I'm in. Or is there uncertainty for you? Is it maybe something that's a bit complicated? And actually, you're kind of glad that Easter's finished because now that Easter's finished is, means you don't have to think about it for another year. How is it for you? What's the Easter event? Well, to help us get some good answers on this and to rise to the occasion of Paul's challenge back in 1 Corinthians, 12 there, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 there, for April, what we're doing as a community is we are lingering a little longer in a season of the church called Eastertide. Eastertide is a season of the church, 50 days from Easter Resurrection Sunday through to Pentecost. It's the season that we're now in. Churches all around the world are sitting in Eastertide. And we're joining them for these next four weeks. We're not going to go right through to Pentecost, but we're doing these next four Sundays. And what we're doing as we sit in Eastertide is we are considering what we do with the Easter event. What actually happens, what plays out as a result of that for you. And a little analogy just to help you with what we're doing. Uh, you know, if we go and watch a movie, we rock up to the movie theatres, we watch it, we enjoy it, we take in the story, and then often if we've gone with a friend, we kind of leave like joking about our favourite bit, don't we? We kind of quote our favourite. We usually hash the quotes already. It's already not accurate, but you know we're trying our best to retell the, the jokes to each other. Um, we're, we're talking about our favourite characters and what we liked and what we didn't like, and that's it. It was a movie. We've seen it. 
And then maybe a few years later, you're flicking the channels on, on TV at night and you're flicking between ad breaks and, and that movie comes back on and you're like, oh, I, re- I remember seeing this. Yeah. Th- oh, man, I forgot she was in it. She was so much younger then, you know, like we kind of do that, right? Like, oh, wait, is this the sequel or is this the first? I can't quite remember which one this is. When we watch a movie once, we enjoy it, we absorb it, but it's kind of pretty shallow. But there are movies which we watch over and over and over and over again, aren't there? There are favorite movies that we have. You have one, right? You have those movies. Maybe it was the movies that when you were a kid, they were the movies on the VHS that you watched every wet Saturday and it got put on straight away. For our house, it was Mighty Ducks. Was there any other Mighty Ducks fans? Or a couple? Yeah, yeah. You know, Mighty Ducks was like a well-worn VHS in our family or Hook. My brother loved Hook and I just got so sick of that movie. But like, but it was always playing. Uh, in my teenage years, my best friends and me would watch Dumb and Dumber. Like that was the well-worn DVD. It was just over... I mean, we could put this on at any point right now and I'm with you and I could like, I could just be quoting the whole thing right through with you. I could tell you every bit, every joke. I still laugh at it because we have these movies which become our favorites and as our favorites, we re-watch them over and over and over again. Maybe they're a Christmas movie that get watched every year at Christmas. Maybe it's just that movie that you're like, I need to watch Love Actually or whatever it is for you. It's not for me, but it could be for you. No judgment here. All right. All this to say, what's going on here is when we re-watch, we actually see more of the story. Pieces that we missed, contexts that slipped through the first time we watched it, things that we misunderstood. We, we actually, if we watch it once, we skim it. But to re-watch is to linger. And to linger is to be more observant. And to be more observant is to see more of the scene, right? We see more of what was being presented to us. And this is the work of Eastertide. Eastertide is the church's season to linger in the movie of Easter, to watch it again and again, let it replay. A season of the church is our way of forcing us to kind of gather around the same movie for a while and to look at the scene of Christ's work in the world and to actually understand it, that we may be able to take it in and take it to heart, not just skim it, but understand it and observe it. And so we're going to linger for these next four weeks, including today, so three more weeks after today, we're going to linger in one chapter of Luke's gospel. The chapter is 24, 24th chapter of Luke. And in that, we're going to look at four stories that are back to back to back throughout that chapter. Firstly is the story of the garden and the tomb and some perplexed disciples. Some disciples who did not know what was happening in the midst of what they were standing in. Next week, we're going to look at the next story, the story of the road and some disappointed disciples walking along that road. Next week after that, we're going to look at the story of this room with the doubting disciples in it that Jesus appears to them in. And then lastly, we're going to look at the mountain where Jesus ascended from and then uh, left his disciples behind, the left behind disciples. So we're going to look at all of this over these next four weeks as Eastertide. Eastertide is us lingering together to be able to see more clearly and more deeply as we look at what the Easter event is for us. And so today, we're going to start with story number one. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to read the opening story for this series. We're going to read from Luke 24. And if you have a Bible, feel, please feel free to follow along with me. And if you have a phone, um, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So if you can select that, then that's, um, 
there won't be a translation difference, which will be awesome. So we're just going to read these first 12 verses of uh, Luke 24. We stand to honour the word of God to make sure that we're treating it with honour and, and uh, posture our bodies accordingly. And so this is the word of God for us today. But every, sorry, but very early on Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified. They bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he's told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell the 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and he saw the empty linen wrappings. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Grab a seat. This is the word of God for us today. So just to recap. The Sabbath has ended and the women are taking these spices to go and uh, work with the body uh, to, to prepare it for uh, being in the tomb. And as daylight has, bro has broken, they are making their way to the tomb. They're, they're, they're getting towards the entrance. And as they arrive at dawn, they find the stone has moved. Uh, the stone would have probably been a large disc-shaped rock, a big stone that was rolled along a groove in front of the tomb. And it's been rolled back which could have suggested all kinds of things. It could have suggested tampering with the body. It could have suggested that tomb robbers had been there, which was common in the day. Um, all of this is, um, is uh, just sort of making them stand there perplexed, it says. They're perplexed. What, what? This is not what we expected. You know, spices in hand. He's meant to be here and he's not here. And then in that moment enters the arrival of these two radiant beings, these angels. I mean, throughout the scripture, that's often how they're portrayed. Two men standing with glowing clothes and um, they speak and they, they make them frightened at first. Fair enough. But then they make, they make this beautiful declaration. They say, oh, my goodness, do you not, you, do you not remember what he said? He was going to be suffering and, and then he was going to rise from the dead. And that's what he's done. He's risen. He's not here. They make this declaration and they remind these women of what they're standing in the midst of. But the women weren't expecting that, were they? And so this sort of moment of perplexity turns to like joy. Oh my goodness, we were coming here to, to work with a dead body and the dead body's not here. And then they run, they run off to the disciples to tell the story to them. And the disciples disregard their story. And part of that is because the disciples, a bit like the women just earlier, they're not expecting this. This is not how the messianic return is meant to look at all. This is messing with them. But also it's because in the culture, um, Jewish officials considered the witness of women to often be um, worthless. And so there's a bit of cultural stuff at play there in the room, but not for Peter. And Peter gets up and he runs and he runs to the tomb to see for himself. And here in this artwork, we've also got John beside him because in John's recollection, John goes as well. But in Luke's recollection, he's just picking Peter to, to portray and that's fine. Um, but they run off and it says the same thing. Peter gets to the tomb and he is 
perplexed. Let's cover this a little bit today. They're standing there, the women and Peter, perplexed. What is to be perplexed? Perplexed means it's, it's this feeling of being completely baffled, very puzzled, confused. It means that we've lost bearings of what we normally would have been expecting. They're not there and I can't get my bearings. And so we all have moments in life where we feel perplexed, don't we? We all have moments in life where we feel baffled, puzzled, confused. We have these moments all the time. Uh, just a little while ago, I was driving out to Dairy Flat to go and see a family that I, I know out there, and they're on a rural road, 100 k's or 80 k's, I think it is, and it's an open bit of road, and they've got a farm. And, and I was driving along, and I've visited them many times, but in visiting them many times, there's a tree line that I look for, and I know that their driveway is there. And I drove along, and I found myself like driving through corners, like, no, this is not right. I've missed their house. And so I did a U-turn, came back, like back at the junction, like what is going on? Like I missed, there's something not right here. I did about four, four U-turn trips up and down the street, up and down the road. And I'm like, why can't I find what, like I'm literally sitting in my car perplexed. Where is this? Am I, on the, am I on the right road? Like what is going on? And then I realized as I drove past one other time, I, I suddenly caught a glimpse of their house and realized the tree line's gone. They've cut down all their trees. They got rid of the tree line along the fence by the driveway. And I, could, I was looking for this fence line of trees the whole time and it wasn't there. And it was open and it was different and I wasn't expecting that. I lost my point of reference. Or another way of saying it is, I lost my connection point. I lost my ability to find the thing that I was expecting to be there that would mean that I could understand where I was. As human beings, we rely on knowing connection points all the time, don't we? They make us feel secure, they make us feel stable, they give us a sense of we're in control. Connection points make us feel safe. You know, imagine travelling through an international airport in a few more months' time, maybe, please, please God. You know, travelling overseas, going over to the back of Europe somewhere, some sort of something-something stand, and you, you're in a plane, and you land in an airport, and you get off, and you're like, I'm about to have an epic adventure, and you have to catch a connecting flight, and you get into this airport, you're going to go find your little connecting flight, and to your dismay, there's not a sign of English anywhere. There's nothing in English. There's no signs. And you stand there. Don't, I mean, have you had this moment when you stand in a place where you're, it's not your normal place and you're like, what do I do? Where, where do I go? All of my reference points are blowing out the window right now. I don't know how to get my bearings. You know, when we are looking for certain things and we can't find them, it's disorientating, isn't it? And that is what it is to be perplexed. That is what it is to be confused. That is, that's what it is to be the woman standing in front of an empty open grave. That is what it is for Peter to be standing in front of an empty open grave too. You know, our lives, our lives are spent making points of reference to understand things. You know, I'm parenting my little son. He's two and a half years old. And I'm forever helping him to connect objects to words and feelings to names and actions to behaviour. Like I'm just forever trying to get these connections to happen. I'm always working on it with him. I'm forever in the business of helping his little brain, which is going crazy every day as he grows so fast, as he learns so fast. I'm in the business with him of making sure that the best connections that can happen, happen. And my job as a parent is actually to help him map that brain, to map knowledge, to map memories, to map symbols, to map love. It's my job as a dad. My job is to help his brain form in that beautiful, loving way. And in our culture, 
We have a map that we are living to. We have connection points of what the good life looks like. We have this map that's been presented to us of what the good life is meant to look like. You might know some of these connection points as I say them. Here's the map. Get your degree. Go to the gym early to get the good bod. Eat good food every mealtime. Work the dream job. Find the love of your life. Get married. Have the family. Get the promotion to a better job. Buy the house. Still go to the gym early to have the good bod. Eat even better food. Work hard, but play hard with great friends, enjoying great leisure and, and holidays. Live a life that's Instagrammable. Essentially, that's what it is. Connect the dots of all of that on your map, and you're going to have a good life. That is what our life is being presented to us, to, to us as, as a cultural picture. Here's the connection points. Hit them, and you are on the map you're having a good life. You're tracking well. But what happens? What happens when those connection points break? What happens when those connection points fizzle and crosswire? And when those connection points don't work? What happens when you're in your second year of your uni degree and you realize you actually don't like this topic at all and you've just wasted a year and a half of your life? What happens when the gym is not helping you get the results you wanted for your self-esteem? What happens when you discover that your dream job is actually killing you as you overwork and work way too hard for it? What do you do when you can't find love? What do you do when it's another month and another negative pregnancy test? What do you do when your marriage becomes a separation and your bags are packed and you're heading out to spend your first night apart? What do you do when your changing jobs was forced upon you because of redundancy, not because of your own choice? What do you do when the house is $1.1 million entry level in Auckland? How do you ever make that dream happen? What do you do when the friendship breaks down and the desire to go and have fun and do activities together is gone? What do you do when your life is not worthy of this Instagram connected picture that we're being told about? I'm a pastor. I sit in conversations with people and that is what we have to deal with. Broken connections. Missed connections, things I thought, I thought this is what the good life is and it's not delivering right now. What do I do with that? I sit with a lot of perplexed people. Let's think about this for one more moment about this list, lots of connection points in one more way. Let's talk about faith. Let's put it into a faith world for a moment. You know, people say, Sometimes the reason that they have a faith is because they've connected all the dots, which I think is an interesting thing to say in regards to this today. Yeah, I've got faith because I've connected all the dots and I've figured it out. And then, yeah, I've, I've decided this is, this is faith. I, I want to live this way. You might have done that. You might have connected all the dots, got it all lined up, and now you're in. You know, we say things like we've got a healthy faith or we say things like we've got an unhealthy faith or I'm not feeling like I'm so plugged in right now. And it's, it's my observation that we say that it's healthy when the connections are all firing. And I think we say it's unhealthy when the connections stop firing, when things break down, when we're losing the previous anchor points that we used to feel secured to. You know, sometimes the breaking of those connection points is because of sin, is because of selfishness, it's because of brokenness, it's because of repeating unhealthy behaviors. And sometimes it's because the anchor points weren't the right ones to be tied to in the first place. Sometimes they just need to change. Sometimes it's because we are growing. Which brings me to a little bit of work here I just want to share with you. This is the critical journey. 
by uh, Janet Hagberg and uh, Robert Gulick uh, from Fuller uh, Theological Seminary. It's a, it's a book that's just an absolute essential piece of work in the church in these last couple of decades. And in it, they have mapped the critical journey of, of growth, uh, spiritual growth, faith growth. And in it, they've done some beautiful work. There's a lot of, oh, there's a lot of these actually existing in the last couple of decades, but this one is just stunning and, and very holistic. Um, and in this, what they present is this here, which is the uh, stages of growth as a paradigm, the growth stages. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take a few minutes to talk you through this diagram. And I want you to listen for when I talk about perplexity. So listen out for where perplexity fits in this diagram. So stage one of the growth phase, uh, the, sorry, growth stages, stage one is the recognition of God. And in that, we realize that there is more to life than just us. We wake up to the reality that there's something more going on. We acknowledge that there is some sort of higher power, some sort of being beyond ourselves. We wake up to that fact and we say, I get that one. So that's stage one. And then stage two is to translate that into the life of discipleship. And in that, we don't just sign up to a higher power. We commit to following Jesus of Nazareth. We move from just this sort of grand anything goes picture to a one of knowing Christ and joining a community in pursuit of that, putting ourselves into a community to belong in on that journey. So in the life of discipleship, there's a lot of belonging. There's a lot of belonging to Christ and a belonging in a community in the pursuit of that. Then the third stage is the productive life. And in the productive life, we shift from um, belonging to now beginning to operate. We operate in our calling and our identity and in our gifts. We figure out what they are and we start to put them to work. We start to serve the church. We serve the world. We start to do good works and partner with God in making good things happen. And then the authors say that's often the point in which most of us stop. Yet we're only actually two stages around the diagram. There's still a fair bit more to go. But in their experience and in their writing and in their wisdom, they say most people sort of, they just bounce around between stage two and three, keeping those two things alive. But there's actually more to this to go. In stage four, the journey inward is the stage there. And we actually shift, not just from making things happen in, in our life of discipleship, we actually now shift to a deep and personal inward journey of healing, of deep healing, where the things that are um, needing to be sifted are sifted out of us. And in this time, there's a lot of doubting and there's a lot of perplexity. And in this stage, we're confronted with something that shows up. In this stage, the wall appears. The wall is not a stage. It's actually an obstacle. It's actually pain that we can't get around. It blocks our way forward. And the only way is actually through. We can't go around it or over it. We must go through it. You have to do the mahi of acceptance, the work of accepting things. You have to place yourself into, a, 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 into um, sorry, this is the place of inner choices between stages four and five. A lot of resilience starts to come to the table, a lot of persistence and prayer, a lot of things that are deep works, they start to happen at this stage. Most people, most people hit the wall, most people don't get through it. But if you do get through it, this is good stuff, eh? Whew. Come to church, be encouraged. <laughs> Step five, the journey outward. Once the excruciating journey of the inward is experienced, our focus then changes. And it changes to being outward. But 
from a new grounded center of ourselves. Unlike in stage three, when we're working because we're motivated by being productive, in stage five, we're more aware of our faults, we're surrendered to God's will and his spirit, and we are a more healed and whole self. Our life is not lived in fantasy. I thought that was so important when I read that. Our life is not lived in fantasy, but in full acceptance. We have joy. We have fulfillment. We serve in a completely different way to in stage three. The motive is now love. We have encountered a new love by going through the sifting of the wall. And in stage six, we have the life of love. A life lived to reflect God to the world clearly. God has given the credit. We are at peace with ourselves. There's no ego. There's a life of rest and a life of calmness. We're slower in the world. We're not easily shaken. Life is lived content and it's lived in childlike wonder. Now note in the paradigm there. Where was the stage of perplexity? It was in the fourth stage. It was in the stage of the inward journey. In the inward journey, we sift, we shift to a personal inward journey of healing. And in that, perplexity is part of the terrain of the sifting. It actually does a job. It sifts out the rubbish. You may be there right now. You may be going, that is me. No one's put it that way, but I'm there. You've been doing the mahi for a while as you start to work inward, start to do stuff on your interior life, realizing the stuff that you're carrying and the stuff that's been formed in you and you're starting to put work in. You might have been there for a while. You might find yourself staring down the wall at the moment. You know exactly what I'm talking about as I talk about these things today. You know, but most people, most people reach this perplexing stage of faith and what do they do? They confront the wall or they start looking at themselves and most of them do something called deconstruction. They deconstruct their way out of this moment. And rather than honoring it and realizing it's a gift of the Lord for our growth, they just start to deconstruct everything and bail their way out of the whole thing. But we are actually invited to this fourth stage and even the wall so that we don't go in a different direction or deconstruct, but so that we can go through it, so that we can go. And facing the inward work is hard, it's vulnerable, it's a lot of work, but it is in this stage that there is a step to take for our further maturity. Perplexity is part of the journey of growth. If you haven't got to it yet, you're going to. You're going to. This is a talk to file away for another day when you find you sort of wake up and go, oh my goodness, I'm in that, I'm in that new stage now. File it away. If you're in it, let me say something very encouraging to you. I know it's hard, but you're growing. You're growing. The Lord is growing you. That is what's going on in this time. And if you're through it, then I would love to have coffee and learn how you did it because you are, you are a unique person. You are wonderfully unique and I want to know what, what, how, 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 how have you done it? Because uh, most of us just spend most of our life battering ourselves around at this fourth stage. I can think of a couple of great saints in my life that I would say they look like the sixth stage. There's only a couple. But what if we could be a church? What if we could be a community where our walking of this journey is an accepted and encouraged and cheering on kind of environment as we do this together? So back to the story in the garden. Let's go back there. I'm starting to land this thing for you. 
The women found themselves in this moment of perplexity and they needed new bearings. They needed new things to anchor to. They needed new connections because the old ones had gone. They needed to recover something. They're standing there perplexed. Wait a second. This is not what we thought we were going to get ourselves into this morning. They enter a new connection through the word of the angels. The angels bring something to them and it is resurrection. The angels announce to them, they state to them, they declare to them, remember what Jesus said? It was going to be like this. He's not here. He's gone. He told you that. Don't you remember? They announce this to them. And from that declaration, they are reminded of what Jesus said. And then they put the two and two together with this new context and off they go. They've got something of a truth that they are off and so, so, so happy about. And it's this new connection point that emerges. And here's what strikes me as I was preparing this this, this week. It didn't exist one minute earlier. One minute earlier, they were walking to the dead body with spices in hand. They were going to go and work with their dead rabbi. And then in one minute, everything has changed. The last three years of life with God, everything gets flipped over, interpreted differently, reinterpreted. Oh my goodness, he said that, he meant that, far out. It all happens in that one minute. Jesus the Messiah has risen from the dead. Jesus has done something new and it's not fitting their framework. It's not what they expected. They didn't arrive to find that. Uh, Sorry, they didn't arrive expecting to find that. But once they found it, they found it, saw it, anchored in. You know, let's change just for another moment to one of the other characters. Let's go back to Peter just for a few moments. You know, Peter, he also finds himself standing there, panting and perplexed. And I've been wondering about Peter this week. I've actually been trying to pray my way through Peter's moment. And I found myself thinking, I wonder if Peter stood there panting, breathing in air, gasping for air after he's run to that tomb. And I wonder if he thought about a story, a story that was back in Mark chapter 10, a story of a conversation that the disciples all had with Jesus one time. The disciples were talking with Jesus and Jesus said this, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. I wonder if Peter's panting against that rock thinking, he's, has he done it? Has he done what he said he was going to do? And then the conversation straight after that scripture in Mark 10 is where John and James are talking over their expectations of Jesus. And they're saying, we want to sit on your right and left hand of your throne when you get in charge. And sort of Jesus has this like face palm moment of like, it's not going to look like that, guys. And he tells them, this is the conversation straight after that one. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? And then James and John go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can. They do that. Read it for yourself. Their their approach is like, yeah, we can do that. And do you think, I just think Peter was just sitting there panting. The stone has rolled away. The clothes are there, but Jesus is in there and he's going, has he actually done it? Has he done that whole that story playing in his mind? Has he done has he ended the suffering? Has he done the thing that he said he would do? This is the perplexing side of the good news. Jesus has followed through on what he said. He went through suffering. He went through death. Now I just want to just 
slight little side note here. Jesus didn't go to the grave and back. He didn't, go, he didn't come back from the grave. It's actually the wrong way to think about it theologically. He didn't dip into death and come back. Jesus is the embodiment of Psalm 23. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death to the other side. He entered through death and completely transformed it. He transformed its outcomes into a whole new reality. He didn't just dip in and back. He actually journeyed through. He went through death. That was the suffering he entered. That was what he did. And that's why he, as we spoke about on Easter Sunday at our dawn gathering, he is the lion lamb. He's the conquered, conquering lion. But yet he's the lamb that entered into suffering. And he has done it. And this, this is the service he spoke about. This is the love on display that he talked about. This is the power in a whole new way that he promised. And it is an entire paradigm shift of what Jesus came to do and who God is. And it's shifting in that very moment around them. And that, that is why Peter stands there gulping an ear, perplexed. Now we're going to find out a little bit more about those disciples over these coming weeks. We're going to look a little bit further into their journeys. But just today, as we finish, I want to finish prophetically, by allowing ourselves to just sit in the reality of that story. It signs off and they are perplexed. And I just know that for some of us, we are the same. John, do you want to come maybe um, just start playing a little bit of keys, man, just as we finish up? Um, Because the band downstairs is really rock and roll today. (laughs) As we too enter this moment, I want to ask you, you know, What is your perplexity? Where are you perplexed when it comes to life with Jesus? Where are you perplexed when it comes to the things of faith? What are you currently confused about? Where have have the anchor points shifted? Where have you lost connections? Is that due to sin or is that just due to growth? We can just call that that today if we have to as well. And what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that perplexity? Because you're part of a community and and part of being in a community is that this is what we share together. We actually give it to each other as gifts of the journey. And no perplexity is too big or too small here in this community. And you're allowed to have them. You're allowed to have those moments where you're standing in front of the tomb and you're gulping an ear going, I didn't think it was going to work out like this. I really thought it was going to be different. You're not alone. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to bring it to light? Are you going to let the wall be known? Are you going to start to journey through it courageously in community? You can do that here. But let the lesson of today be an encouragement to you. The lesson of today is this. Your perplexity is a place for discovery. You're actually at a point of change and of growth. Don't turn back. Go through. You know, young people, whatever happened to you at youth camp, don't turn back. Go through. For those of us who are here for dawn, the lion and the lamb, don't turn back, go through. Whatever, whatever's your perplexity moment at the moment, whatever it is, don't turn back, go through. And we too are like the disciples in this story who had no idea of what Jesus' death and resurrection was going to really look like until they needed it to be so. And they were standing there in the midst of it. And I just know there's been moments in my life and I know there's been moments in so many people in this room's life as I've talked to you about this. There are moments when we need Him to be the risen Christ and He is. And sometimes we just need to be honest and allow Him to be that for us. So let the fact that He's risen become one of the great connections of your faith. This is the birth point of Christianity for a reason. 
we must become more familiar with this great turning point of history, which started with some perplexed disciples standing in front of a stone that had rolled away from the front of its grave. And so a benediction for you today as we finish. Do you want to stand actually as I just give the benediction today? We're going to come to the table. You might like just, just to close your eyes as I pass on this benediction, this final word today. It is my prayer for you. These are my words for you. These are my pastoral words. May you, the perplexed, encounter the risen Christ. May you not have a faith of smoke and mirrors, as 1 Corinthians 15 put it, but the real thing. You will have to go through perplexing times and you will have to make new connections. But in doing so, you will make a whole new map. The map of the resurrected life, a new life, lived richly in love with God, with others and yourself. Do not stop at stage two or three. Go the whole way. Go through. So Lord, as we come to your table, we come to this meal that nourishes us on that journey. And we bring our perplexed thoughts, our doubts, our confusion. We bring the things we're angry about, the things that we're unsettled over. We bring it. We bring it to this table that you have made. You have made a space for all of us, welcomed us in and said, come and be fed here. Come and be known here. I want to be your teacher and rabbi and friend. And so, Lord, together we come to this table today to come to the one who can answer the perplexity, the one who is love in such ways that we still can't fathom, the one who is power in ways that we cannot fathom, the one who is grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and rightness. We come to this space, to this table today, to be fed and known here. So I want to invite you to the table. This is our call to the table. It's written by our community. It's just a couple of weeks old. And this is our new one. So if you haven't seen it, this is our new one. We hui in the name of Yahweh, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And at this table, Tarangapai is embodied. At this table, we remember His victory on the cross. We rest in His presence now and every day. We hope for the future that is to come when all things are made new. And so come. Christ welcomes us all. There's always more room, room for friends, old and new. Whether you call Him friend yet or not, He already calls you friend and He has set a place for you. The invitation is yours. You may take your place. May this meal embody His grace that feeds you every day. Jesus, as you became the bread broken for us, may we become, through your grace, the bread that is broken for the world and the cup that is poured out for all that we might play our part and take your table beyond these walls. In the name of Tamatua, Tatama, Bitawairu Tapu, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come to the table. The table is open for all of you. You're welcome. There's one over here, one over here, one over here. And today uh, for the 11, why don't, you, why don't you grab the elements, come back to your seats and just stand and we'll take it all together. Okay, so come.